Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Morning, friends. Thanks, Scott, for that. You know, there is an old saying that I don't know if you've heard or not. When I've said it to my kids, they didn't fully understand it, but I think maybe you'll probably know it. The old saying is that there are no atheists in foxholes or cancer wards. There are no atheists in foxholes or cancer wards. What's a foxhole? Well, foxhole represents war, a time of, of war when people are fearing for their lives and facing their mortality. And cancer wards, probably more obviously, so when we come nose to nose with, again, our mortality, with our, with our limits, with our potential loss of life for us or for others. And, and this saying, there are no atheists in foxholes or cancer wards, means that every one of us, every human, whether you are a devout believer or whether you're agnostic or whether you're an atheist and everyone in between, every human has moments of desperation and moments where we hit our limits, and moments where we realize our lack of control. And when that happens, there is nothing more natural, there's nothing more primal, there's nothing more stoppable really in us than to just cry out for help, to cry out to God. And that, that applies even if someone is, doesn't even believe, or maybe they're mad at God. And even so, in that moment of desperation and limits, it's entirely natural to cry out. Why? Because this is what it means to be human, to be a created being, not the creator, is that we are limited and we are ultimately not in control of our lives. And the reality is that that's actually always our state. That's always our situation. We're not really in control of our lives, but it's in those moments those moments of desperation, intensity, that we, like the veil is pulled back and we see what our actual real state is. And when that happens, we, we feel the need to cry out to God. And even as I was thinking about this and writing these words and writing the sermon earlier in the week, you know, I can think of a lot of many, many times desperate situations I've been in where I've cried out to God and I'm sure I've forgotten many more, but you know, one very dark one comes to mind that I, I trust I will probably never forget back on June 15th for us, for my wife and I, she had gone through brain tumor surgery and it was about 12, years late, 12 hours later, we're in the ICU and things still started to really go south and she was experiencing <clears throat> excruciating pain, like in waves of like contractions, she described just in her head and, and it was just getting worse and worse. There was nothing we could do and she was maxed out on her pain medications and we're both, you know, panicking really. And then like a scene out of a movie, they rushed in because they were afraid of brain bleed and unplugged everything and are wheeling the 
whole bed down the hall, down an elevator to get an emergency scan. I'm running behind. I mean, it's just, it's just one of those moments. Like, you can do nothing but cry out to God. I know many of you have experienced things like that. Many of you didn't work out. But whether it's that dramatic or traumatic of a situation or not, the reality is there are no atheists in foxholes or cancer wards. And here we are today at the beginning of 2023. On January 1st of 2022, our family had no idea what the next year was going to hold for us. There's been lots of joys, but lots of loss, some pain, financial strains. Also had two kids get married. That, happened. that was on the joy part, not on the, uh, well, the financial strain part too, but, the, but, but that was on the joy part, but lots of joys, but lots of pains. It's very, very mixed. And I would imagine if you look back on 2022, it was very mixed for you as well. And here we are at the beginning of a new year, and the reality is none of us knows what this next year is going to hold. You might have, we all have plans, we have ideas, but the reality is we really don't know what the next year holds for us, and that's okay. We actually can't know, and we don't really need to know. I think what we need as we begin a new year is to learn how to actually pray. Not just in those desperate moments, but to actually live into the reality of our state, our state of dependence. Well, let me pause here because I actually know exactly what just happened in your minds. <laughs> a sermon about prayer. Hooray. All right. In fact, if, let's do a little heart diagnostic check. If I were to say right now, um, hey, this afternoon we're having a three-hour prayer meeting. We'd love for you to come along. Or even hey, I'm going to preach a sermon about prayer. I know your interest level and your desire, your, your passion level just dropped a lot. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. And why is that? Why is it that in these moments of desperation, there's nothing more natural than to pray, but then when life is, doesn't feel that desperate, it is actually one of the most difficult things to be interested in, to be passionate about, for most of us, that is, and to, to do why is that? Why is prayer so not instinctive when everything is going well? I think there's probably a number of reasons. For many of us, we've actually, especially if you've been in the church for a while, you've had some probably awkward prayer moments. If you imagine like you're sitting around a circle or something and you're sitting there, whether you're an old believer or a new believer, and people are going around and they're praying these like heartfelt weeping prayers and, and eloquent prayers with these and thous, and it's coming around and all you can sit there and do is in, in panic. <laughs> it's going to come around to me and now I'm supposed to pray out loud, right? Anybody been there? You're afraid to admit it, but oh, you all have, I think many. Maybe you've experienced this awkwardness in prayer. The mind is such an amazing thing where even while you're praying sincerely to God, you're self-conscious, -con like especially if you're praying out loud with other people, you're aware of this other conversation going on in your mind. Have you ever experienced this? I remember, I'm, some of you have heard me tell this story. My family always laughs at me about this. I laugh too. I remember many years ago, I was teaching in a situation for an organization, and I was with a small group of people that I'd been with for several weeks in a row, and this, a, a, a woman in our group was sharing something very personal, and then we're taking turns praying for them and nobody prayed for her. So I was going to close our time in prayer 
And so, um, you know, I started to pray for her. And then in that moment, I was freaking out about what her name was. <laughs> Ever had that happen? Was it Jess? Was it Jen? And I knew her. Like, I, I just was panicking, right? And I could not. And so while I'm sincerely praying, I have this conversation going, what is her name? Because I don't want to just do the generic thing. I pray for our sister. That just, that's just your clue. You have no idea what the person's name is, right? So if I ever do that to you, I'm really sorry. But... But that is, I, so I'm having this conversation in my head and we get to the end of the prayer and I wrap it up and I'm so panicky about it. I say, in Jenny's name, amen. <laughs> Turns out her name was Jenny, but that's not the most orthodox way to end a prayer. We all lifted our eyes up and looked at each other. What was I supposed to say at that point? I mean, so maybe you've had, maybe not that bad of an experience, but maybe you've had awkward prayers or I mean, maybe more profoundly, you just don't know what prayer is, and you don't know how it works, and I don't either. And, and maybe you're afraid to pray the wrong thing. Maybe you're, you're scared to pray to God that he's going to be mad at you or something. Whatever it is, for all these reasons and many others, we really, I think, struggle to know how to, prayer, to, to pray. So let me reassure you that I, I am going to speak for a few minutes about prayer. Particularly, I want to look at the first couple of verses of the Lord's Prayer together. But this is not a sermon guilting you or shaming you into praying more. This is not 2023, let's start off with some guilt and shame and pressure you into praying more. This is not that at all. Because the reality is shame and guilt and duty never motivate. They don't motivate for very, very well, and they never motivate for very long. And so I have no interest in shaming you or guilting you or pressuring into praying more. Instead, I really want to cast a vision for you, and maybe a way you haven't thought about what prayer actually is, particularly by going to Jesus' most famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer, we call it, and especially those first couple of verses, and just ask what you know, what, what does this say about prayer and, and how can we learn to pray from what Jesus has said? And really to add to the weightiness of this, I think what we're going to find is not just a prayer technique this morning. I think what Jesus is going to teach us in the Lord's Prayer is really fundamental to what it means to be a Christian, to our very orientation to the world and to each other and to God himself. And we don't have time to go through all the Lord's Prayer. I mean, books and books and books have written on it. Um, but we are going to look at the first couple of verses. So the thing is, the Lord's Prayer actually comes to us. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 6. We'll also put the words on the screen or pull it up on your phone, Matthew chapter 6. The Lord's Prayer is like one of the greatest hits of the Bible. And so you, most, most of us know it. But it actually isn't just this sort of separate little thing in the Bible. It comes to us in a particular context. It comes to us within what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5 to 7. It's actually literally, even if you count the words in Greek, it is exactly in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. It is really the center of it. And a lot of scholars have argued that it you know, really makes sense of the whole sermon. There's different discussions about that. But it's very, very important. And the context of the Sermon on the Mount, really, of the Lord's Prayer, sorry, frames it up. And so what I'm going to do is take a moment and look at the few verses that run us into the Sermon on the Mount. And this, I think we could be, could be called how not to pray. So Jesus is going to teach us how to pray in the, in the Lord's Prayer. But first he's going to say how not to pray. Look at, with, with me at chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus says, and when you pray, <clears throat> do not be like the hypocrites, 
For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who's unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your father's knows, father knows what you need before you ask him. Just a couple of things, how, how not to pray, according to this. This is what these verses are about. I think the first thing to observe about how not to pray is not to pray like the hypocrites, Jesus says. And what that means here, if you, if you go back and look at it closely, it, it means praying when your motive is to be seen by others. Praying in such a way that you want to impress other people and that you're more conscious of uh, of other people than of actually just simply praying to God. Jesus calls that a kind of hypocrisy. And, and the antidote to that is to pray privately, he says. Now, you always have to be thoughtful about these things. Of course, th- that's not what he's saying here does not mean you never pray with anyone else or you never pray publicly because there's all throughout the Old and New Testament, there's tons of times and through church history where people are called to and do pray with each other. So this clearly isn't saying you can only pray by yourself when nobody can hear you. The issue here, which is the issue all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is your heart. Why are you praying? Are you praying because it's like a spiritual thing to do? Are you praying to make yourself look spiritual to others? Jesus says, don't do that. There's no good in there. There's no life there. There's no necessity to do that. Don't be like that, okay? So that's not first how not to pray. Don't pray to, to be praised by other people. And then the second thing he says about not, how not to pray is not to pray like the Gentiles, your translation may say, or pagans with kind of weird sounding words. Those words in the Bible just are shorthand for the people who are not God's people. In the Old Testament, the Gentiles, just an overall term, hagoyim, for everyone who's not a Jewish person. In the New Testament, it's, there's this kind of play on words that happens where the Gentiles often now, especially in Matthew, becomes anyone who's not a follower of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. So it's like it gets turned around intentionally from Jesus that a Gentile here or a pagan represents anyone who doesn't really know God, anyone who doesn't really know God according to Jesus. And what he's saying is don't pray like people who don't know God. What does that look like? What is that praying to people who don't really know God? It looks like babbling. Did you see that? He says back in uh, verse... Uh, whatever, whatever it is, verse 6, go to your room, pray uh, verse, into verse 7, and when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans. Hey, what does that mean? Well, babbling like the Gentiles or the pagans is an is a approach to prayer that thinks that if you sort of work hard enough at it and, and say enough words and maybe say the right formulas, that somehow that will convince the God to do something for you. And this was actually very common in the ancient world. Pagan people, Gentile peoples, Greeks and Romans and all kinds of other people, they would pray repeated prayers. They would just say the same thing over and over and over in kind of like a magical incantation sense. And they would be very verbose and very eloquent sometimes about these prayers as well. And mantras in many religions and people, they use a mantra where you just say the name of a God over and over. You say some phrase over and over and over. And the idea is that you'll kind of get into a a state yourself. And then by, by somehow doing it, either in the state it gets you into or by appeasing some God, something magical will happen. I don't know if you remember the story from the Old Testament from 1 Kings chapter 18, 
where the prophets of Baal have this contest uh, with God's prophet, and they, the, the prophets of Baal are just saying these words over and over and over, cutting themselves, and the idea is the hope is that that somehow will make their God Baal listen to them. According to Jesus, as frequent as that kind of praying is, that's not really praying. That's just babbling. And the reason that's not really praying is found back in verse 8. It says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Let that sink in. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's a father to you, and he knows. You don't have to inform him about what your needs and desires are, and you don't have to try to twist his arm. The point of this is, is that if you know God, you are actually a child of the Father who knows all things and who is able to do them. No manipulation is required. No long-winded rituals, no magical incantations. The people that pray that way are the ones who don't actually know God. He's calling us to the opposite of what we might think and what many religions would teach. We can actually pray to God simply as a child to a father. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, God is always ready to listen, but he cannot be manipulated through prayer. Babbling to get God's attention, to manipulate him, to get what we want is foolish because the father is aware at all times of his children's needs even before they ask. Or one pastor put it this way, our prayers must be fervent, of course, and they ought to be frequent, fervent and frequent, but they need not be fancy. I like that. You don't have to be fancy. You don't have to be a really good prayer. You don't have to be a, a good public speaker to be able to pray to God because he's not looking for fancy. He's not looking for eloquence. He's looking for a child who's looking to a father. And friends, I think that's very freeing. That's very freeing. You don't have to be good at prayer. It's very freeing to just recognize you are t as a child turning to the Father. So that's how not to pray. Don't pray like you don't really know God or you're trying to manipulate him or doing it for the praise of others. So how do you pray? Well, let's, let's look at the Lord's Prayer. Let me read these famous verses again. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts and as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. So what is this teaching us about how to pray? Well, the Lord's Prayer, short, memorizable, pithy, um, it, it's not everything. It's not all the prayers we would always pray, but it is this perfect little God-oriented, Father-inspired, Christ-centered praying. We don't have to pray these exact words, although I think that's actually not a bad thing to do. And the reason is, is because these words, again, they're not all of our prayers, but they are like, people have called them different things, like they're like scaffolding. If you're building a tower and you have scaffolding around it, these, these words are like a scaffolding that help you ascend a, a tower of prayer. Or they're like handrails, a similar analogy that guide us as we pray. Again, we pray more than this, but it's probably good to not pray less than this. These are, these are good words to use to guide us, to shape us, to, to form our life of prayer. And notice how short it is. Unlike the, 
the babbling of mantras or repeated phrases. He just gives us seven petitions that kind of shape how we think. And if you look at these petitions closely, and we're just going to look for a moment at the first three, but if you look at them all together, a lot of people have noted that this is pretty similar to the Ten Commandments in the sense that there are like two parts to it. The first part is oriented toward God, and the second part is oriented toward others. There's like a a vertical aspect to it and a horizontal aspect. They really are about loving God and loving neighbor. And they're really both about the future and about the present. This is a good way to kind of think about them. But I think the most important thing about Jesus' prayer here and what I want to spend just a couple of minutes thinking about with you is that way that he opens it, that he tells us to pray to our Father in heaven. What does that mean? to pray to our Father in heaven. You know, we're so used to, if you've been around the church, you're probably pretty used to thinking about God as Father, and that maybe not sound, doesn't sound particularly different or something. And it is important to note that Jesus certainly wasn't the first person to call God the Father. He is referred to as Father in the Old Testament a few times, and a lot of Jewish people did. But it is really distinctive that except for the cry of dereliction, except for the prayer when he's quoting Psalm 22 at his death, except for that one prayer that's recorded, every time in the Gospels when Jesus prays, he prays to the Father. This is really a very distinctive aspect of Jesus's model and life of prayer, to pray to the Father. And now he's inviting us to do the same. So what does that mean, to pray to God as our Father? Well, as we mentioned a moment ago in verse 8, it means that we don't have to, we're not approaching God as if he's reluctant. We're not approaching God as if he's some distant, non-relational being that we have to use magical incantations to, to get him to listen to us. Instead, remember the words from Galatians 4, Paul says, and because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is this fundamental Christian reality that our relationship to the God of the universe is actually the one of a, of a child to a father. And so for Jesus to call God our father, what that would have meant in his day is, I think it would have emphasized especially the familial, the family aspect And at the same time, the idea that he's like a respected provider and protector. In fact, in Jesus' day, the idea of a a father communicated really both those things together, simultaneously like reverence and connection and and familiarity. But what's interesting, what it doesn't mean is this sort of... um, uh, I mean, sometimes you hear people talk about daddy, which I'm not opposed to that, but I think that misses probably what a father would have communicated in in the ancient world in Jesus' own day and culture. It would have been something more like this combination of true relationship, a warm relationship, but also a healthy sort of reverence. I just watched with one of my daughters the the several years ago, the Disney uh, re-live-action version of Aladdin, and you know, it, it just struck me that there's a really great picture there of this kind of notion of father that I think is in the Bible, and it's Prince Jasmine's relationship to the sultan. So there's a true familiar, a warmth, a relationship, a, an intimacy in that sense, and there's a respect. There's a recognition of a difference 
and an honor. And I think that's really very, pretty clearly the idea of how God is presented as a father in the Bible. And also notice that phrase that's attached to it then. The father is the one, our father is the one who is in heaven. And so you have simultaneously this closeness, this father relationship, which is pretty shocking that we can be in that relationship with the true God of the universe, and the emphasis that he's sovereign, he's bigger than us, he, he's cosmic, he is universe-wide, he is the creator of all things. He's the father in heaven as opposed to us here on earth. So there's this combination, really, of closeness as well as power that I think is really in, in, in embedded in this beautiful phrase, Father in heaven. Now, there's a problem, though, because I realized that when that none of us had a perfect father and None of us had a father who was perfectly loving and protective and maybe close to us. Many people had a father who was maybe distant or abusive even and maybe not even present, neglectful. Maybe probably most of us had fathers who were very mixed. They lost their temper sometimes. Sometimes they were good. And I think there's something really, really important whenever you think about God as father in the Bible, like Jesus is teaching us to, and that is that it doesn't go the direction we think it does. In other words, the reason God is called Father in the Bible is not because we look at human fathers and then think, oh, God is like that. That's not how it goes. The reason why God is called Father is because he actually is that in a perfect and loving way. And then we call humans who have some role above us, you know, genetically and biologically or by adoption, we call them Father. But they're never the same as God as Father. So in other words, I'd like to kind of switch the script or flip the script there for you. If you have struggle with your own father, don't project that onto God. That's not how the analogy goes. The analogy is that the sense you have of what a father could and should have been for you is who God actually is. He is the model. He is the standard by which all fathers, even the best of our fathers, fail. But we don't project our failing fathers onto God. They, God shows, God as Father shows us what we truly long for. And that leads me just to, to look at these, and this is all we're going to do, is just look at these first three petitions really quickly. Don't have time to talk to the rest of the Lord's Prayer, but I just want to look at these first three things, the first three of the seven petitions that are all to the Father. Look at verses 9 and 10. Again, Jesus says, first, hallowed be your name. Now, I know if you, this is, I think this is the NIV. Most translations still say something like this. They're starting to change because, again, even though this is familiar language, we don't really use this word hallowed anymore. We have it in a couple of places. Halloween, obviously, and then deathly hallows. That's it. That's the only hallow we got, and neither, maybe neither of those really mean much to us, but hallow just means to sort of honor, to show that something is holy, to show that something is good. So Halloween, as you probably know, is the, the eve before, the, the eve before the holy day so of, of, of November 1st. So hallowed be thy name just means, God, let your, let, let your name be honored. Let it be lifted up and seen as truly holy. And then look at the second one, your kingdom come. I mean, this is the entire heart of Jesus' ministry. He comes preaching. If you go back and read, and sorry, in Matthew, 
uh, chapters 3 and then 4 and Luke, what we're going through here at church and others, this is what Jesus' message is, that the kingdom of God has come through him and he is the king and that God is the king and he is the king on the earth. This is the central message of the Bible. And so he's saying, God, let your kingdom come. And that means that God's people hope for and long for God's reign, his rule, his place and space where, where shalom marks our lives and, and relationships are ones of peace and love, the things that we know we're built for and long for. He's saying, let that come into being. For, for Jesus, the word kingdom would have meant something like a, it's a picture of a community of people living together under a good and perfect and beautiful ruler, but living together in relationships of love and shalom and peace and, and goodness. And then the third one, so you let your name be hallowed or sanctified or honored. Let your kingdom come, your reign be upon the earth, and then let your will be done. This is let God's ways, which are always good and beautiful and perfect and true, justice and love and peace, let, let God let that be the reality for us. And if you think about these three petitions, they really are just other ways of saying the same thing. Those three, let your name be honored, let your reign come, let your will be done, those are really just kind of a threefold way of saying the same thing, and they're all modified did you see it in verse 10 by that very important little phrase? As these things are true in heaven, so also upon the earth, or on earth as it is in heaven, is kind of the traditional way we say it. And friends, that is really the key to understand all of this. That these are the realities already. God's name is honored. His, uh, his reign is complete. His will is done. Where does that happen? perfectly and fully in the heavenly realm. And the Christian hope and orientation, the petition here is for those realities to become earthly realities. That's absolutely central. This is this orientation to life that God is giving us, that Jesus is teaching us, that this is the desire of the Christian, that those heavenly realities where God is perfectly in charge and ruling would become earthly realities. And, and of course, there's a mystery here because God is still totally in control of the whole world. But, but there is all this brokenness and imperfection. And in a way that we don't fully understand, God's will is always done in one sense. And yet his will is not done in the sense that the world looks like a lot of injustice, things that are not from God. It looks like a lot of pain. Looks like a lot of suffering, a lot of fear, a lot of hate. Bad people shoot other people during prayer meetings even. Men book vacations to Southeast Asia to do things they should not. Children are mistreated and removed from their families Children are forced to work in diamond mines and slaughterhouses. Cancers, tumors, hurts, wounds. People destroy each other in relationships, mental illnesses. 
would just go on and on. This is what the world is like and what we experience in the world. And so the fundamental Christian prayer is that this brokenness that we experience, that we see, that God would come and bring shalom. That God would come and bring justice. That God would come and bring healing. That God would come and bring restoration. You see, at the core of Jesus' prayer, the way he's teaching you and me to pray here at the beginning of 2023 is that we, have an, we reorient our hearts toward this reality that his reign and realm and beauty and truth and goodness that is already in heaven would become the earthly realities. And again, what I want you to see is that, again, this is not just a prayer technique. Jesus is giving us a fundamental understanding of what it means to live as a Christian. Because a Christian is one who sees and feels the brokenness of the world because we have, we're tapped into the sense that these things are not right. We see it in ourselves. We see our own sins. We see our, our failures and our mistakes and our regrets and our anxieties and our pains. We see it. We see it in the world around us. We see things done to us, things we do. We see that and we feel that. And to be a Christian is to want, is, doesn't deny that. It's to tap into that and say, God, you are teaching me to pray. This fundamental Christian position of our hearts is that, God, make your goodness and shalom and truth and beauty, make those heavenly realities the earthly realities. I like how one scholar describes these as gospel aches. These are gospel aches. Longing for God to come and set the world to right. So Jesus isn't here guilting us into praying more. He's not saying, you should be praying. He's saying, pay attention to what's really going on in the world and in yourself and use that as an opportunity to pray to God and say, God, have mercy. Come and restore me, restore my relationships, restore the world. And ultimately that is, if you keep reading the Bible, the book of Revelation, that Romans chapter eight, other places, that is what's going to happen. But as we live now, we live with these gospel aches. We're longing for God to set the world to right. And we are engaged in it as well. This is how fundamental this prayer orientation is. It's not a technique. It's not a mantra. It's a reorientation of our hearts towards God and towards the reality of what we experience. And friends, you don't have to this year be in a foxhole or a cancer ward to sense this. I woke up this morning just thinking about this. Think, think about some unmet desire and longing that you have. I mean, something good that has never been met. Maybe it's been years. Some unmet desire and longing that you have for some goodness. Maybe it's relationship. Maybe it's meaningful work, spousal, maybe you're lonely. Maybe it's related to children, having children or not having children, struggling with infertility, whatever it is. Think of some unmet desire and longing that you have. That's a gospel ache that God is giving you and inviting you in that moment to turn to a father who is in heaven. To, to actually say that is brokenness and what you're feeling is real. 
And I'm inviting you to say, our Father, let your will be done. Bring, bring goodness. And there's a humility in that. There's a submission that God's will is wiser than ours and that we can still express our desires. That doesn't mean we'll get how we think it's going to come about, but we can still lean into that ache we have and use that as an invitation to turn to God as Father. Or think about anxieties. Anxieties are aches about the future. Maybe anxieties about your children, young children. I, I, I meet with a lot of you and talk with you, and I understand. And I have a lot of kids too. Anxiety about young adult children, adult children. Anxieties about your finances, anxieties about your job, anxieties about your relationships. Those are gospel aches that are an invitation for you to turn to God, who is your Father. In humility and submission, not in babbling. This is how and why we pray, because that actually is our human experience, and we pray to tap into the reality of it. So what do we do? So to conclude today, let me just ask the important question. What do we do with that? And I just want to give you two super brief bullet point reflections. And just first to encourage you that real prayer is personal and authentic. It doesn't have to be fancy or skilled. If there's any message of the Sermon on the Mount overall, it's that God sees and cares about our hearts. He cares about our inner person. He doesn't care about outward show. And that's good news. That's really good news. Because you don't have to be eloquent, you don't have to be skilled, you don't have to be theologically educated to pray. And use this actual Lord's Prayer, again, as a handrail, as a scaffolding. I was thinking about it, it's like a, it's like a, a concrete uh, form that you put and you pour the concrete of prayer in it so that there's a solid foundation. The, the Lord's Prayer, again, isn't everything we'll pray, but it's a really good form around our praying. So that as we pray, just get on your knees and pray the Lord's Prayer and maybe pause at each phrase and, and express your own desires related to that or pray through it and then let that begin your prayer and then pray. Let it be a shaping influence on how we pray. And then the second practical point I'd give you, and I'm going to sting you a little bit here in love. When someone shares with you something hard or difficult, don't say, I will pray for you if you're not going to. I know that's become kind of Christian jargon. I'll pray for you. But when you say that and then you don't really pray, what you're doing is you're cheapening the whole idea of prayer. So if you aren't going to pray for them, then just say this. And now if you say this, you're going to know that somebody's not going to pray for you. But just I, I really care for you and I, you know, I... What I often say is, when you come to mind, I will pray for you. And then I do. But let's stop using I will pray for you as like we use how are you doing when you don't really want to know what they're going to say. <laughs> how are you doing? And if they actually told you, well, my life's really strong. Hey, I was just saying hi, right? You know, Don't say I will pray for you if you're not really going to. In fact, what I've found is really great to do. If so, someone shares something painful with you, I will just often stop and say, hey, can I pray for you right now? And then just take 30 seconds and pray. Because then you don't, they don't have to feel like you kind of gave this trite answer, and you don't have to feel like when you didn't pray for them, you feel guilty about it. <laughs> just pray for somebody. Or one of the things I experienced 
over the last six months when a lot of you were praying for us, one person in particular, he would regularly send me voicemails or audio messages of him praying for me. It was really beautiful. It was so much more meaningful than just saying how I'll pray for you, which again, if you're saying now, now you're feeling guilty. If you said you pray for me, I'm, I trust that you really will. I'm not judging you in that. But what was so meaningful is this, this one brother in our church would actually just say, he would send me these like 30 second prayers. Lord, I pray for Jonathan today that he and Tracy would have strength. And just, it was so meaningful. What a, what a beautiful little thing to do. Let's blow up each other's phones with sincere audio messages, 15, 30 second prayers for each other. It's beautiful. And in all of this, I titled the sermon, it should be on the bulletin, I think it is, these, with these words from Anne Lamont. Lamont, sorry. Thanks, help, and wow. What she says is that at the end of the day, all of our prayers kind of end up bumping into these three words. Thanks, help, wow. And I, just, I love that. So if you feel sort of intimidated by prayer and feel like you have to be, you don't know how to do it, just think about those big three categories, thanks, help, and wow. So when you see something amazing, wow, thank you, God. (laughs) When you have something good happen, thank you, God. When you need something, Father, help. You don't have to be fancy. Thanks, help, wow are a great way to just kind of think about your life of prayer. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.